we're going we're gonna to jump into the sermon this morning, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Have you ever suffered for doing the right thing? Ever happened to you? Have you ever suffered for doing the right thing? And Mark's sitting back there at the sound booth. He says, yeah, pastor, every Sunday when I make myself listen to you speak for half an hour. <laughs> and you might share that sentiment, suffering for doing the right thing. He didn't say that. He might have thought it. We're going to continue to work through more teaching in 1 Peter. And, and I want this to be an exercise that, that you take advantage of here this morning because I want to, you to visualize a time that has either happened to you in the past. So maybe there has been a circumstance in your life in which you, you did the right thing, uh, you, you st- stood for what you believed was true, and then harm came of that. You, there was hardship that was a result. I want you to, to think of that and to keep it in your mind as we work our way through this teaching. And then, and then maybe this is, speaks to your situation right here, right now. And you came through these doors here on an August Sunday morning, and you're like, you know what, this is, this is my story. I am being challenged right now to endure some hardship based on what I believe is the right thing to do. And, and you could be some of those lucky few out there, and you don't have any situation that comes to mind. This hasn't happened to you yet. It's really not a good explanation for what you're doing right now. But, but then I want you even then to think of a hypothetical. What situation do you think is possible or plausible that, that you could face in, in your school, in your workplace, with your friends, with your family? What could be a situation in which there would be potential suffering coming from doing the right thing? You see, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. And there are so many good points that he makes here in, in this idea of suffering for righteousness, which is the way he describes it. And so many of these ideas here, though, are almost like it tends to be the case in these letters. They're just chock full of good information, not always organized the way that we would organize it. And so I want to work us through a bit of a process of how when this happens to us, what we can do to endure this suffering for righteousness in a way that honors God and honors others. So in order to do that, I again want to invite you to think of a moment in which this has been true for you and keep that in mind as we work our way through this process. All of this to say, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3. We'll read this passage together and then we'll pray. Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. 
in Jesus Christ, we, we, we finish our passage today with this reminder of what you have done for us, that you, the righteous, would die for us, the unrighteous, and that what was dead would be made alive. And that's a wonderful place of hope to begin any interaction with you with. And so, God, I pray that we would collectively, as we think of these different ideas or times or situations when we have suffered for doing good, suffered for following you, for living the way that you want us to live, God, I pray that we would remember that you have done this first, that you have endured on our behalf first and suffered on our account first. And God, that we do all of this in response to you. I pray that you would guide our time together. And we commit this in your holy name. Amen. So again, tightly with this idea in mind of, of how you may have suffered for doing the right thing, we want to acknowledge that, that we're talking about a specific type of suffering. I mean, this is the, the human life, and as we walk through it, we all suffer for a variety of reasons, and not all types of suffering are really what, what Peter's talking about here. For example, he's not talking about self-imposed suffering, which sometimes we're pretty good at. <laughs> These are direct consequences of the wrong things that we do. Or, or for the boneheaded decisions that we may, may make, or the different outcomes of our own behavior. This is not self-imposed suffering, things that, that we do wrong, or as, as Peter would say, uh, suffering for doing evil. And there's so many different examples of this in my life, but I don't want to share any of those with you. So we're going to talk instead about somebody that uh, I used to work with. At my high school job, I was working at Safeway as a bag boy, or as they like to call this, a courtesy clerk, which is a very nice way of saying bag boy. We did all the different errands, and, and I worked there, and then I, I quit over a summer because I took the summer off, and I went back in, in, in the fall, and I asked my coworkers, what's happened while I was gone? I said, well, they hired a few new people, but not all of them made it. And so there was a few stories that they were, they were sharing. And one of these intrepid individuals was working as a courtesy clerk, and he thought he would, would scam the system. So we would have these big jugs of water you put on your water dispensers, and then you could fill them, and you bring them back, and we give you a full one. There was a $5 deposit that you get back when you returned a jug so that we wouldn't lose all these jugs. Well, this person thought, what a great idea that when I return this jug to the back, I'll, I'll put it all the way out the back door, and then my friend will grab it, and he'll circle around back. He'll get a, a $5 deposit a second time. And so he stole from his workplace, and then he got fired. And that is self-imposed suffering. And it gives us the moral of the story, which is do not steal. But if you have to steal, don't do it from your place of employment because then you get fired too. It just is not very smart. So I always like to pick on people that that make different mistakes than I do. But we all know about self-imposed suffering. That's not what Peter's talking about. Nor is he talking about suffering that we may have the opportunity to avoid. This might seem a bit weird. And I'll say this. Do not seek out or glorify suffering. I'd be like, well, pastor, who in the world does this? And, but the truth is, throughout the history of the church, there have always been movements that have glorified suffering, sought it out, even gone out of their way. There was these groups of monks who would engage in self-flagellation. That's, that's not flatulation, that's flagellation, where they would, very different, where they would whip themselves in order to feel pain. And, and the reasons for doing this are that they would, they, would, they would use suffering in order to feel maybe an added weight of guilt or shame for their sin, or that they would use the suffering to try to further identify with Christ who had suffered pain and torture on the cross. And, and that's not 
Again, we don't need to go out of our way to glorify or seek out suffering, nor is it required to stay in a place of suffering unnecessarily. That's, again, not what Peter's talking about. We touched on this a little bit last week, going through the household codes that Peter was talking about and, and saying that for, for slaves or servants should, should obey their masters, even those who are unjust, and they should serve them willingly with respect because enduring that suffering is is pleasing to the Lord, it's glorifying to Him, it's a gracious thing. And we mentioned at that time that we should not use that as, as a justification for staying in an unsafe or an abusive place, whether it be a marriage or a domestic situation or toxic friendships. And those slaves or those bond servants had no recourse. They were stuck under the authority of their masters. And again, Peter was saying, in light of the freedom you have in Christ, this is how you can revolutionize that relationship without having to leave it. But today, if you are in a place in which you are being abused, it is, not, it is not good advice for me to say to pick up your cross and to stay in that unsafe place. Get safe, get help. If you can avoid that suffering, I believe it is a God-honoring thing to do so. So we're not talking about self-imposed suffering or avoidable suffering. We're also not talking about grief and loss and suffering, which is a very legitimate type of hardship and suffering. And it's one that we will all go through at some point. It's just not in the scope of what we're talking about this morning. That's a completely different type of sermon. Peter instead says that we are going to suffer for righteousness, or as he says in verse 14, to suffer for righteousness' sake. In other words, we're talking about suffering for doing the right thing, which is, again, my hope is that you have an idea or a story in your mind as we go through this. And it can happen in small things. We can suffer for doing the right thing. For example, you could be going to the Steinbeck Credit Union after hours uh, into the lobby there to the ATM to get some cash. And as you get to the, to the ATM, you can see $100 on the ground. And you know someone has just left. You know it's their money. They're just halfway down the sidewalk. What do you do? I mean, that's a whole week. That's a whole half a week of groceries right there sitting on the ground, a whole hundred dollars, right? That's a small thing that if you did the right thing and picked up the money and returned it to its owner, there would be a type of hardship or suffering that would come from that. Or it could just be in what would be a more likely situation for many of us. And you walk into that workplace or down the halls of your school and it starts again in fall and you'll hear people that are, that are they're, just, they're perpetuating rumors or they're gossiping about someone talking behind their back. And there'll be this, this pressure to join in that conversation. And if you refuse to do so, then there could easily be some social repercussions for you. And so many other potential examples in these small things of everyday life in which we could suffer for doing the right thing. But, but then there are those times and situations where there's much bigger stakes at play. One movie that I've appreciated uh, that released in 2011 is the movie Courageous. It talks a lot, it's a Christian movie, talking a lot about what it, what it looks like to be a courageous man of God in, in all these different arenas of life. And so this is, again, just a script, but they have a, a husband and a, and a father who is working hard and they are barely making enough money to scrape by as a family. He gets called into his boss's office and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a promotion to this managerial position on one condition. I want you to cook the books. I want you to fudge the numbers. And so it's better for us as a company. If you do this, then I'll give you this promotion. And he goes home and he wrestles with this with his wife. They need this money. They need the promotion. But in the end, they're unable to, to put their integrity to the side in order to do that. 
Now, because this is a movie and things are scripted, well, that ended up being a test for this man, and he passed the integrity test. He gets the promotion. Life doesn't always work that way. There are moments in which, yes, your job, your livelihood, or an important relationship may be on the chopping block. and You're asked by God, are you willing to endure that loss in order to do the right thing? So yes, we suffer in the right thing, in small things, in big things, and also in faith things. I had the opportunity to have conversation and coffee with Thor Barkman, the new principal here at Steinbeck Christian School. And I think he's going to do a pretty good job. I was excited about what I learned about him. And we were talking a little bit about acknowledging the hardship that it is, especially for students that graduate and go to university. And part of his heart for for this school is that it would be a place of preparation so that when the students of Steinbeck Christian School graduate and then they enter the larger world, that they are prepared to endure it, to stick to their guns, to stick to what they believe, to continue to do the right thing even when it costs them something, something which I am very grateful uh, to have my kids be a part of here at Steinbeck Christian. But it doesn't matter what school you go to, that's still the call in our life. Are we willing and able to do what we believe in these areas of faith? In John Piper's book, The Hidden Smile of God, he shares a bit of the story of John Bunyan, who was a Puritan preacher in England in the 1600s. And Bunyan was arrested and put into prison for 12 years, from 1660 to 72, for preaching the Bible the way that he was convinced it needed to be preached. There was a lot of political and religious strife in England at the time, and because he was not a licensed state preacher, he was thrown into jail. And all he needed to do was recant and say, I will no longer preach this message, and he could have gone free. To make matters worse, Bunyan, at the time of his arrest, had a wife of less than one year. He was remarried after his first wife died. They're in the first year of marriage, and they had four children under the age of 10. And he could either go to jail for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, or he could just say, I won't preach, and he could go free. This is what Bunyan wrote in those circumstances. When asked to recant and not to preach, he said, If nothing will do unless I make of my conscience a continual butchery and slaughter shop, quite the image, unless putting out my own eyes, I commit me to the blind to lead me, as I doubt not as desired by some, I have determined the Almighty God being my help and my shield yet to suffer. If frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on my eyebrows, rather than thus to violate my faith and my principles." He was willing to sit there in prison for as long as was needed rather than violate his principles. He was suffering for righteousness' sake. And so what has your suffering looked like? Small things, big things, faith things. What process can we learn from 1 Peter that will help us endure the suffering in a Christ-like fashion? Well, the first step to respond to unjust suffering for doing the right thing is to not be afraid. Peter tells us, do not fear. He frames it in a bit of an odd fashion. In verse 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter gets out in front of this and says, Hey, to the dispersed church in Asia Minor, I know things are difficult for you, but if you are a a person or a group of people that are living peaceably, that are good citizens, that treat those around you with love and respect, even when they don't deserve it, then for the most part, you will not suffer. For the most part, you will have more friends than enemies when you treat other people with that level of respect. But that's not always the case. He says, but even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, 
nor be troubled. Even if you suffer for doing the right thing, don't fear those who seek to do you harm. We can curry a lot of good favor in this life. And when we treat other people with respect, most people will return that favor. Yet there will come times in which that is not true. And that is something as Christ followers we can expect. And Jesus himself experienced this and wrote this to his followers in John 15, verses 18 and 19. He says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. So we can live as respectful and lovingly as possible. But if we are committed to following Jesus, then there will come times in which the world does not understand, in which the world will push back. And that will not be the majority of our experience, but it very will come a time when that does happen. And again, Peter is writing to the chosen exiles. So we are, we are exiles. We are just wandering around here on this earth until we find our future permanent, eternal, heavenly home. And during that wandering, we can experience some suffering for doing the right thing and for believing in Jesus, especially as the world moves further and further away from Christian values. And when this happens, and when there is pushback or harm or suffering on account of doing the right thing, we should not fear those who seek us harm. We should instead fear the Lord. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 10, a very difficult passage to, to, uh, to hear sometimes. He says in, in, in 1028, this is when Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles to do the ministry on their own. He's getting them ready for what type of hardship they may encounter. And he says in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. I mean, that is I was like, yikes, like Jesus, he's not pulling any punches here. He's, he's boiling it down to this. He says, the worst thing that any enemy can do to you in this life is take your, take your physical life. They can kill you. They, you can, they can take your life here on earth. That is the worst thing that they can do. That's as much power as they have. But God, God is the one who judges and holds our eternal life in his hands. And so in the grand scheme of things, just as we do this math, if, why should we fear those who can only take our life now and not fear in even in greater sense the Lord who has our life in the life to come in his hands? We fear the Lord because he is our eternal judge. And yet this is not meant to make us afraid of God like in the same way that we are afraid of someone who would do us physical harm. This fear is much more about fearing the God in the, in the reverence of his holiness, and to give him this true and rightful place as judge. And now Peter says this is how we fear Christ. He says, Have no fear of them who are your enemies, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor him as holy. Honor him as the Lord. Know that he is the one who is the key to eternal life. And do not hold this life on this earth too tightly in your hand. Just Amazing for me, because we remember that, that this is written during the time of Nero. And Nero was imprisoning and, yes, even executing Christians according to his whim and his will. And so for those who were listening for the first time to this letter, it would have been quite the command to do not fear. But as we, again, think of these times in which we suffer for doing the right thing, the first thing is to not fear And having overcome fear, then we can move to that second step, which is to respond gently. 
And fear won't allow us to respond in this way. If you are truly afraid, it often leads to this fight or flight desire. And both of those things will not help us endure suffering. It will just fan the flames. It's the very similar advice that we might give to a child or a student who's enduring bullying at school. If you run away and and, and they know they're getting to you, then that bullying will continue. If you try to fight back and they're riling you up, then that bullying will continue. We can't live in fear. We can't live in this fight or flight mentality. Instead, we need to respond gently. We do this in two ways. The first way, Peter says, is that we can gently give a defense to the hope that is in you. So I like this because so far I'm like, okay, we're enduring suffering. We're willingly submitting. We, we learned that last week. We're, we're not repaying uh, all this, this evil talk with fighting back. But can we do anything? Can we speak up at all? And Peter says, yes, you can give a defense of the hope that's in you. But just make sure that when you are defending that hope, you're doing it with gentleness and respect, as we read in verse 15. This can be hard to do. When there's false accusations, when there are harsh words and slander coming our way, it is so difficult to take a deep breath and respond in a calm and respectful manner. But when you do this, it can deflate almost any conflict situation. As Karen and I continue to do premarital counseling, uh, we, we love being able to sit down with these young couples and we'll talk about conflict resolution and just acknowledge that it takes two to stay angry. It takes both of you. And as soon as one party is able to step out of that anger and to calm down and to respond in a peaceable manner, then it just takes all the wind out of the sails of the other person. And there's so many different, it's not limited to marriage. In any of these relationships, when we are calm, it calms everything down. And it's in that spirit and at that moment that we can give a defense for the hope that's in us because then the other person will be at a place that is ready to receive that defense. Not a personal defense. You're not defending yourself. You're not defending your own honor. You're not defending your own actions. You're defending the hope that is in you, the hope of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for defense here is apologia, which is our root word for apologetics. And I probably just butchered that word, but you get the idea. When we say apologetics, we mean this is a defense or a reason for the hope that we have, what we believe. But it's also not limited to experts. You don't have to be an apologist and to, and to write books or to go on debates with atheists. That's not limited to that scope. All of us, says Peter, as we go through this world as, as exiles of our heavenly home, all of us, as we experience suffering for doing the right thing, need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So you don't need to be a professional. I think if you want to be someone who's ready to share this hope, the best way to do it is through your own personal story. Because there'll be some pushback. Again, when you're suffering, whatever situation you're thinking of, when, you, when you're suffering, people should know why you are willing to do this. Well, why won't you just give in? Why won't you just do this thing? Why are you acting so different? And that's the perfect opportunity to give a reason and a defense for the hope that you have and to share your story. This is it's not me. This is Christ in me. This is how Jesus has changed me. This is what he has done for me and how I live differently in response. And I love the fact any, anyone, anyone here can share their own story about Jesus. And no one can push back because it's your story. It's the evidence of Christ in your life. It's powerful and it's true. And it's a great reason to give, a, um, it's a great way to give people a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet Peter doesn't stop there. 
I think it would be great if Peter says, when there's a situation and people are, are hating you or are pushing back on you for doing the right thing and for, and for um, following Jesus, then all you need to do is calmly give your reasons and walk away. But Peter goes a step further. He says, not only are we to not uh, repay reviling with reviling, but we need to actively bless those who are causing this suffering. That was the first verse we read together in, in 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. And I would even say now with what we've learned, do not also only give a gentle response of the hope you have, but on the contrary, bless. For you, for this, you, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We don't just not do wrong. We actively bless and do good to those who would do us evil. It's a hard, hard call. It's one that Paul echoes in Romans 12, verses 20. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how do you overcome evil? How do you make these false accusations seem untrue? How do you heap coals on someone's head? How do you put to shame those who would slander you? All of these different ways in which Peter and Paul have described the situation is this. You just do good to those who would do you harm. Don't just be silent. Don't just avoid evil. Do good. When is the last time you went out of your way to do good to someone who dislikes you, someone who bothers you, maybe even hates you, someone that you might slot into this enemy slot in your life, someone who has done you harm, started a vicious rumor about you, pushed you out of a friend group, uh, uh, stopped you from getting a promotion you deserve at work, When's the last time you went out of your way to do something good to that person, for that person, in response to that? I mean, this is a wildly, radically different way to live. And I think it would be a great symbol of the difference that Christ makes in our life. So I'd encourage you to think about this as, again, you're, you're visualizing an idea or a time or an experience in your head. How could you actively do good to that person or to that group? I challenge you to do that. And now if you go home and this week you get a whole bunch of gifts dropped off, dropped off at your door, then you really need to start thinking about how you're treating people differently, right? How can we do good to those who would seek to do us harm? Well, all of this is only possible when we follow the example of Christ. I'm actually going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. We skipped over this section in the household codes because I do believe it actually gives more credence to what we're talking about today. And listen to how straightforwardly Peter talks about following the example of Christ. 1 Peter 2, starting verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what is this example of Christ? Well, we know that he committed no sin and told no lies. Jesus was perfect. He was perfect in his righteousness, and yet he was still unfairly accused of blasphemy and brought before those who who put him through, again, unjust trials. 
And yet even there, when they slandered him and brought all these accusations against him, he did not revile in response. He did not slander back. He did not even defend himself in return. He stayed silent. And the reason for this, because he did not fear those who sought to do him harm. He instead feared his heavenly father as the true judge of his character and his person and his eternal destiny. And then he laid down his life, even though he did not have to, for the sake of the healing of others and for the sake of your healing here this morning. And he did all of this to bring people closer to God, a detail we see in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the example of Jesus. That is what he has done for us. It's more than just a model. Peter told us, and, you know, Jesus has given us an example so that we might walk in it. We should walk this way. We can't just look to Jesus. We need to act like Jesus. We need to follow him. How does that look in our lives? Well, we are not sinless, but we are called to have a good conscience in our behavior. If we are to suffer for doing the right thing, we need to know with certainty that our behavior and our actions and our attitude and our heart is right before the Lord. Now, we can do this. We can, we can go and just like Jesus was silent before those who slandered him, we cannot speak back to those who revile and slander us. I think the example of Jesus is powerful because he had every right to defend himself. He was truly righteous. In him, there was no sin, but he refused to play that game. He stayed silent. Are we willing to do the same? We need to follow the example and keep the fear of the Lord ahead and over the fear of those who could do us harm. Leave justice in God's hands. Vengeance is his. He is our judge. He will defend us. He will know the state of our soul and our relationship with him. He will make all the wrong things right. We follow the example of Jesus and sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. And this is truly what it means to repay evil with good. We do not have to have people think rightly of us. We do not have to have our name cleared of all false accusation. We just need to live so that we lay our lives down for the sake of other people. We don't wait for them to say they're sorry. Because Christ didn't wait for us. He laid his life down even while we were still sinners. And he endured suffering with the primary motivation of bringing other people to God. So one last piece of the puzzle for us is that when we endure suffering for doing the right thing, this is other people-centered. It's not about us. It's not for us. It's to the glory of God and for the privilege of being able to share with others the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that they may be closer to him. And so when we follow this process, when we suffer for doing the right thing, and we overcome our fear of those who may hate or revile us, when we respond to them gently and repay their evil with blessing. When we do this all by following the example of Jesus, then we can receive a blessing. And blessing is certainly a part of Peter's argument. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 34 when he says that we should bless others so that we may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who will do evil. So what type of blessing is, is Peter talking about in quoting this psalm? Well, he's not saying that this blessing will be an immediate relief from suffering. 
That's never the blessing that's in mind for Peter. I think he knows full well that this persecution that they're experiencing is going to continue. Hard times will continue to be the case. But in the middle of that, in the midst of the suffering, not in alleviating of it, but in the midst of it, there is a blessing. And it's a blessing for this life, that God would be mindful of us, that he would be aware of what we are enduring, that he would hear our prayers. That is the blessing that we get when we endure suffering for righteousness' sake. All of this becomes your best way to endure suffering for righteousness. It truly helps to have a God turned towards you. I want to share one more quote from John Bunyan. During his time, those 12 years in prison, he comes to learn this lesson well. He says, I have never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ was also never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have had sweet sighs of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I have seen that here that I am persuaded I shall never while in this world be able to express. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all times and at every offer of Satan to afflict me as I have found him since I came in hither. And so what Peter declares and what Bunyan says is true in his experience is that in the midst of suffering, there is blessing. Blessing in the word of God, in the presence of Christ, and in the hope that he has in him. And Bunyan would learn these lessons from prison and go on to write The Pilgrim's Progress, a book which many of us are aware of today. So we have a blessing in this life. God's mindful of our suffering. He listens to our prayers and he comforts us in our time of need. But we also have a blessing in a life to come. And that is true from the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sound familiar? I think Peter is thinking of this teaching when he writes his letter. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So yes, you will have a blessing in the midst of your suffering in this life, and you will have blessing in the life to come. Your reward will be great in heaven. And what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know. I've never been there before. If you go and come back, you can tell me. I'm not sure what these heavenly rewards will look like, but I know that they are worth it. This saying is something that we can trust, that we can endure suffering now, which is temporary, for doing good, that leads to rewards in heaven, which is eternal. And for me, that math adds up pretty quick. So I want to invite the the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing one final song together. And I think that that any kind of conclusion begins with this reminder that that, that all all this situation starts with doing the right thing. We have to be a, a group of people who are committed to living a way that, that, that God wants us to live. And as we do this, as we follow the example of Jesus and we come into conflict because of it, we need to fear God more than we fear others. We need to respond gently and give a blessing even when other people may slander and revile us. We need to remember and then follow the example of Jesus and we need to look forward to and grab hold of the promise to receive a blessing even when we're going through difficult times. Would you pray with me once more? Father God, again we're brought back to the example of Christ. We're brought back to that truth 
that you sent your son into this world, pure, holy, righteous, to endure suffering for us, sinful, broken, unrighteous. And the truth is that which was dead, you have made alive, starting with your son, Jesus, and now with his spirit abiding in us even today. God, I pray that this example is not just an example. He's not just a good teacher, not even just a good moral example to follow, but that the reality is that, that we are made new in Jesus and that in the newness of life we have in Christ, that we can be committed to living, to doing the right thing, that we can trust you and fear you more than we fear others, God. And I pray that you would lead us to endure all the hardships we're going through right now and that we would treat others with gentleness and respect and call to do good to them. May that be our outpouring of blessing this week.